for February 3rd, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 292, A Short Day's Journey into the Driveway. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matthew Rather, here with your panel. This is our annual Super Bowl after, after party, our after podcast. This has become a tradition. Have we, have we done four of these? I mean, have we done, or five of them? Have we done one every year uh, that we've been doing the, the podcast annually? I mean, we must have. We've never missed a Sunday. And so. the Super Bowl hasn't missed a year, so, yeah. <laughs> Although, I don't think one of the teams showed up today, so that's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a joke about how I didn't, how I watched Downton Abbey and missed the Super Bowl, but you can tell from the sadness in my voice <laughs> that, uh, that that is not the case. Uh, I have a big case of, of podcast manning face today, guys. You can't see it, but it's there. So, anyway, continue. <laughs> so, that's a football joke, Matt. You, I'll tell you when you're older. Okay. So... <laughs> Thanks very much. I don't follow sports ball. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> I was actually so right. So uh, uh, Mark and Pete just got back from their Super Bowl parties. So I was they were wor- super. <laughs> I was working today. I was counter programming for the Super Bowl because I was doing a matinee of a play here in Los Angeles in front of an audience of people who are not sports fans. Um. So uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Super Bowl. But before we get to the Super Bowl, uh, one of the most exciting things we learned in the commercials, and I did I did see the commercial. I got home and I I watched most of them on Hulu. So you know all is not lost, my friends. Um, I uh, uh, I we found out that that Jack Bauer is going to London. Jolly um, <laughs> good. You seem you seem to be you seem to be very excited about this, Pete. Do you want to do you want to elaborate a little bit on why why is Jack Bauer going to London? Why is Jack Bauer going to London? Because he's needed there. That's why. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, but they're they're on teacher. the they're on the metric system though. So I mean, uh, what what is twenty four in in British? <laughs> I think it's three bushels. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, a season of Sherlock is only like four and a half hours long, you know? But yeah, no, I, I mean, that teaser with the gun and the four beeps, I mean, I was losing myself. I was just losing it totally. And then when they actually showed his face and like and like pixie cut brunette Chloe, like I was just yelling and screaming. It was awesome. It was glorious. It was all worth it. It was the ID4 of this year's Super Bowl as far as I'm concerned. And we all know what a life-changing experience ID4 was for everyone who saw it. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, so um, question of the week for you, podcasters. What should Jack Bauer do in London? I mean, do you have any advice, you know, for uh, for Jack Bauer going to, to London, what he should do there in London? Jack Bauer? London? Peter Fenzel! <laughs> so, have I, have I mentioned to you guys how to do the uh, flawless Jack Bauer impression? Just just real quick before I answer this question. Have I mentioned it on the podcast yet? You probably like, have, but please do it again. To refresh okay, so the way you do it is that you ask a question kind of quietly, and then without at waiting for a response, you ask the question louder like like and more insistently, like not even giving them a chance to answer it. So, so wait, let, like, me, let, me try, let me try. Oh, yeah. Do you want to demonstrate or can no, I just try? No, no, you try, try first. Yeah, you and, try you, first. and will you coach me afterwards? Yes, yes. I'll give you some notes. I'll Good. see you side coaching. What should Jack Bauer do in London? 
What should Jack Bauer do <laughs> in London? There you go. I think I think the thing you're doing is you're over motivating the second line. Hmm. It needs to be a repetition that's more kind of rote and uh, and less and less informed by your character choice. Got it. But let, I think you pretty let, much got it. Let you want to give it a try? Yeah. No, let me let me go again though. I think I, I think I can get it. I think I can nail this. Pete, give me a chance, Coach. What should Jack Bauer do in London? What should Jack Bauer do in London? There you go. That's much better because you got to be throwing that question in the person's face as if the fact that you're asking the question is itself insulting to everyone involved. Let in me try. Let me, let me try. Okay. Uh, what car should I buy based on all these commercials I just saw? What car should I buy based on these commercials I saw? So, so the thing is you got to be like nicer and quieter the first time that you ask so that there could be a bigger contrast the second time that you ask. And, and try to get a little hoarse in your voice if you can. Uh, what car should I buy based on all these commercials I saw? What? Kind of cars that I buy based on these commercials that I saw. Okay, okay. All right. I don't so, know anything about Twenty Four, you guys. So I'm just- I've been binge watching it on Netflix like nonstop for the past month and a half, and it's been <laughs> glorious. It is. It is the show that was made before they knew. It's like it's like they invented a cigarette before they knew cigarettes were unhealthy for you even a little bit. There's like no filter at all, and it's just like made with extra tar. Like, like Twenty Four is like the pre binge watch binge watch show. I know we'll move on to the rest of the Super Bowl soon, but this is the thing that made me happy about the Super Bowl. <laughs> this is the hug that I got because of the Honda commercial, but. Uh, <laughs> but here's so here's how you do it. So Matt, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. What's a zebra crosswalk? What's a zebra crosswalk? So that's how you you throw. You sort of like you're very quiet. There's what's a ze-? now. If you've been to London, you know that a zebra crosswalk is a crosswalk <laughs> where they have the little slashes of paint that are along the uh, along the street. In America, in my experience, uh, they are treated just like any other crossing of the street in that they are done on instinct and they are go- not governed by any laws known to man that anyone actually follows. But in London, people pay attention to the zebra crosswalks. So if a pedestrian steps into a zebra crosswalk, you have the right of way and cars will stop for you, which boggled my mind like crazily. So I feel like if Jack Bauer is chasing somebody across London uh he he should remember that he doesn't have to look both ways actually the other thing I should tell him is that he should remember to look both ways when he crosses the street because his intuition is going to be to look in the way that he thinks traffic is going to come and it's going to be coming from the opposite direction right so like those two notes uh is to uh, <laughs> right look look right then left not yes, the other look way right around. Then left and know that if you are trying to cross a zebra crosswalk uh, or at a light that's in your favor like the cars in general, in my experience, tend to give pedestrians the right of way to a degree that my New Jersey-raised and Boston-living self finds unfathomable. So that's a – that's a, wow, it's, the, it's a kind of crosswalk on the – a zebra crossing or a zebra crosswalk is, is a kind of uh, crosswalk on the ground, huh? Uh, yes, yes. That's, that's incredible to me. I, I'd like to hijack this podcast for a second, may I? <laughs> Sure. I would like of to course. quote. I would like to quote verbatim and from memory uh, from Douglas Adams' *The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*. May I do this thing? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, it's in the passage about the Babel fish. Uh, the narrator points out that many humans have taken the ba- the existence of the Babel fish as uh, final proof of the non-existence of God. And and now I will quote, as Harold Bloom used to say in seminar, verbatim and from memory. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway. It proves you exist, therefore you don't. QED. Oh, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. 
That was easy, says Mann. And for an encore, he goes to prove that black is, he goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed at the next zebra crossing. (laughs) I always thought that that was where the animal crossed the road. Oh no! <laughs> I always thought that that Douglas Adams was was projecting out in the the scope of his fantastic capacity for hilarity and fantasy a uh, a sort of urban um, crosswalk where perhaps by a zoo or a, a ranch of some kind where a bunch of zebras cross the road. But it has to do with the black and white stripes that are painted on the on the road. Yes, that's correct. I mean, there are zebra crossings in the United States, and they do hypothetically designate greater degree of pedestrian right of way. But just in my experience, they don't really incur, they yeah, insure no, much. No one, pay, no one pays attention to that. Yeah. It's all in pronunciation. See, if we called them zebra crossings instead of zebra crossings, they would actually work. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, are Mark, over to you. Oh. Are you going to look both ways before you cross the street? No, you're going to look both ways before you cross the street. Uh, Flipping the table. Mark, when you uh, uh, when when Jack Power goes to London for three and a half bushels, um, <laughs> what should he uh, what should he do? I believe it's actually ten penny farthings. That's the the unit of time for which you'll be in London. No, so I don't know a lot about community. Everything I know about community, I learned uh, from hearing Pete Pencil rant about it on the podcast or catching various very brief ads of it in various forms of media. Um, and I know very little about London either. Um, I've never been. Unlike other uh, European cities, I've, I've never been to London. I just uh, know a few things about it here and there. Um, and uh, so my recommendation is based on uh, those very scant uh, bits of facts, but it's also transportation or at least uh, car traffic related, as is Pete's. So I am um, told that uh, Jack Bauer is often in a hurry. He needs to get from point A to point B in a uh, very short period of time and uh, doesn't have a lot of time to waste on things like being stuck in traffic. Uh, I also understand that in London there's a system called congestion, uh, uh, congestion pricing or a, a, a traffic control system which charges cars extra to enter the, uh, the congested uh, the traffic center of London. And it's supposed to uh, keep traffic flowing smoothly throughout the city. The reason why I know about this is because in New York City where I live, uh, we tried to implement something like this, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't happen. Um, so I, I think what my advice is that's Jack communism. Is the, it, I uh, mean, is the reason it didn't happen that it's freaking communism? Because uh, Albany is a, a hive of, of of bad policy and corruption, uh, but that's for our other um, overthinking uh, New York State and city politics podcast, uh, which we'll be launching soon. No, we're not actually going to do that. God forbid. That'd be horrible. Um, so, so my advice to Jack Bauer is to get from point A to point B through central London uh, in a reasonable amount of time because he's not stuck in traffic like he is in New York, which I know he was um, – uh, he was in New York for one up one season, right? I, I, I remember seeing an ad of him uh, standing on top of a, the hood of a t- yellow taxi cab in New York City, presumably because that cab was stuck in traffic and he couldn't get anywhere. So it was fast for him to like walk on the cars, right? So in London, he won't have to do that. He should just enjoy the fact that he can ride in a car at a reasonable speed without being stuck in traffic. <laughs> and also, oh, he the- should also try the food. I'm, I'm told that the food in London is quite good. The the taxi cabs in in London are black. Oh, well, uh, that and the zebra crossings make all the difference. Yeah, yeah, well, Mark, okay. since you, you haven't watched much 24, right? You've said. Right, right. So, so let me tell you, Jack Bauer just loves cucumber sandwiches. They're just his favorite. So London oh, is okay. going to be a, a dream trip for him. He just loves those little finger sandwiches. He and the Duchess of Grantham are just going to be just chillaxing. <laughs> so, so one of the hours, right, between 4 and 5 p.m. is going to be him eating cucumber sandwiches. Oh, uh, how awesome is tea time on 24 going to be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
Oh man, looking forward to this so much. Well, I guess I'll go. Uh, my advice for Jack Bauer, other than not spilling his drink all over his lap, is that uh, he should. Um... <laughs> no one will get that joke. He will. No, he, he should. Yeah. <laughs> we just paused the podcast because I spilled my drink. I spilled my adult beverage all over my lap. Uh, believe it or not, I am the guy who has not been at a Super Bowl party all day enjoying adult beverages, uh, you know, since the afternoon. Uh, Don't worry. We're going to send John Stamos's girlfriend to come lick up the, the adult beverage from your lap. And then you're going to buy yogurt. That's how it's going to work. <laughs> My, uh, Greek yogurt. But I, when did that become like a... I thought that was a like a, you know, of the, the yoga pants erotic. Right. Like, well, that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to make it. They're like, trying to cross it over to the mainstream. I guess, totally. I guess. So. Like I, people who like bears, people who like are in the woods with bears should be eating Greek yogurt. Yeah. Not only. <laughs> I mean, right. Not only is uh, one Greek yogurt company trying to cross over, but there's like a rivalry. There's a Greek ro- yogurt rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. With uh, yep. Mandy, with Mandy Patinkin on one side, and. Uh, <laughs> Did you recognize the dulcet tones of Mandy Patinkin in his, No, I didn't. In the voiceover for the Chobani ad about how uh, no. you know how process matters. Uh, no, is that the one with the bear attack? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's the bear one. So Mandy, I love listening to Mandy Patinkin talk during bear attacks. I just, it's just my favorite. <laughs> Uh, and the other one with the the full house reunion. Yes, I spilled my my adult beverage, and my actual real life girlfriend was an angel uh, because I am literally the worst, and this is why we cannot have nice things. Um, so uh, I think Jack Bauer should take in a play at the open air Shakespeare's Globe Theater, which is a historically accurate reconstruction uh, of the um, of the playhouse on the south bank of the Thames, where uh, many of Shakespeare's uh, plays were first performed and where his company, the, the Chamberlain's men and later the King's men, um, were headquartered. So I, w- I would like, uh, I would like three to four and a half hours of the new, uh, the new series of 24 <laughs> to be just focused on Jack Bauer as he stands there still, like in the yard, you know, because he didn't spring for one of the nice tickets with, uh, with benches and he's standing among the groundlings, uh, you know, his chin inclined upward watching Mark Rylance or whoever. You know, play a woman's part in some Shakespeare comedy. Um, I think that would be. I think that would be very good. I actually don't even want to see the play. I just want to focus on Kiefer Sutherland as he like stands gamely, and then later shifts his weight from one side to another as his feet really, really start to hurt. And then, you know, <laughs> you think after everything Jack Bauer's been through, that's the pain that's try- finally going to get him to flinch. It's ironic. It's like the pain you of- see, it's it's ironic. It's the yeah, it's rough the pain production of Twelfth Night. Yeah, <laughs> it's an all male. Right, an all-male production of Twelfth Light with, with, with Mark Rylance as Olivia, right? Yeah. Um, Jack Bauer would figure out all that gender bending really fast. Which one's the girl? Which one's a girl? <laughs> Damn it, we don't have time for gender bending. <laughs> uh, so um, speaking, speaking of great actors, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be the Overthinking Podcast if we didn't mention uh, the passing of Philip Seymour Hoffman, which, was, uh, which is terrible. Um, you know, and especially since, I mean, I, well, I don't know. I, I suppose we don't know anything, and who knows, who knows if we ever will. But, like, the specter of drugs and the word overdose uh, was used in, in the, 
the coverage that I read of it this morning. I was actually um, I was having brunch with overthinker Matt Belinky, uh, who is in Los Angeles for work reasons. And um, we were, you know, talking and passing the time as we do. And he said to me, oh, I have some bad news that is just going to ruin your day. And he turned his phone around and there was the Wall Street Journal article. And they were, I think, one of the first ones who who ran with the ran with the story of Philip Seymour Hoffman being found dead. And, I, you know, I don't know, being being. Um, sort of being an actor and, and working in in theater and on camera and stuff, uh, I always have really admired um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I thought he was, you know, extraordinarily talented. Uh, Belinky and I actually saw him on stage in addition to his uh, many... Um, film roles, which he, you know, he he was characteristically great. He was one of the best Mission Impossible villains, uh, I think, d- partly because of the sort of ordinariness, because of his sort of ordinary and uh, and sort of understated kind of doughiness, right? Um, it was so it was so incongruous uh, with the role of of being a supervillain, and actually, we can talk about the. Super Bowl ad about the all the British supervillains um, who were you know who were sleek and cultured. Um, the the idea that he was uh, sort of gauche and uh, kind of a slob and or or, or you know um, I don't know made him made him all the scarier I thought uh, in that and and so in addition to all this all this film work actually Belinky and I once saw him on Broadway do uh, Long Day's Journey into Night as one of the sons in that alongside Robert Sean Leonard with um, with uh, Brian Dennehy and Vanessa Redgrave as the parents and it was uh, brutal it was three gut-wrenching hours of theater, a performance that I, I don't know how a person found the, the fortitude and the, the reserves of strength to do it eight times a week. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I always have admired people who, uh, who stick with theater after they've become sort of celebrated after they've become celebrity actors because, uh, uh, and especially do very challenging theater, which has a lot of like physical demands. It's it's hard to stand up and talk loud in front of a room of thousands of people, you know, for sixteen, seventeen hours. Well, I mean, t- directly to your point about you know describing it brutal as hard as physically challenging. I mean, uh, one of the quotes that I saw uh, uh, that Phil, uh, uh, that was you know flying across Twitter as the news of his death uh, broke. Uh, one of the quotes was that uh, he described. Um, the, the act of, of, of performing like this, I don't know if he was referring to the stage or the screen or whatever, as um, as brutal, I think was the word he used. It, it was He was very clear about how much it took out of him. And um, I think the quote was, in that context, the quote um, was meant to sort of say that, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman basically was 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 not in a good place, you know, kind of in a lot of pain because of the, uh, of the career that he had chosen and, uh, and the way that he went about his work and which might have con- contributed to um you know his use his abuse of drugs and uh, and whatnot so uh, i mean that's not to say like you know he was so good therefore you know he 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 ended his life 
in this way, but it just speaks to um, the, the sad set of circumstances around his death, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it is, I mean, it is tragic that, like, one of the gifts, one of the gifts that great actors have is the ability to sort of open a window into what's going on for them, you know, like what, what into some sort of experience, some sort of compelling or profound experience. And very often given that, you know, our drama shows people in extremis, right? Like it's an experience of, of sort of suffering and, and, uh, you know, c- certain people are, are very good at that, but often have some, some demons and apparently yeah. Philip Seymour often had some demons and, and, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I, you know, I don't know. It affected, it affected me. Like, uh, he, he was a person I really, he was a person and, a, a, a craftsman of acting that I really admired. And, and I'm, I'm sad for his passing. I'm sad for the performances that we won't get. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the uh, his his filmography on IMDb right now, and um, I'm struck uh, in particular by Synecdoche, New York. Um, I don't, have, you, have you guys seen Synecdoche, New York? Oh yeah, um, which is definitely not one of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman movies. I overall, I didn't like that movie, but um, his portrayal of the long suffering, never satisfied artist um, was really compelling. The best part of that movie for sure, um, and just sort of rings true. Um, as I think about Philip Seymour Hoffman's career now, particularly in relation to just other actors that just very quickly come to mind who seem to capture more sort of a, uh, a, 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 a pleasant, a pleasurable approach to the craft of acting, right? Like, like uh, Sandra Bullock's sort of breezy um, approach to the ups and downs of her career it just it is one example. Like, I mean, for all we know, like, you know, the, the inside of Sandra Bullock's soul is that of a tortured artist as well who's never satisfied with her work. But I'm saying that sort of the, the outward appearance or the sense you get of Philip Seymour Hoffman is not of that sort of breezy, pleasurable approach to acting, right? There's just like, you looked at him, it's like, you know, this guy, he, he, he's bearing with him the pain of, uh, of, of his roles and perhaps of other things as well. Yeah. Um, there's going to be some, there's going to be some work that's coming out, some Philip Seymour Hoffman films being released in, uh, uh, 2014 and, and even into 2015, because I mean, I don't know, I, I guess IMDb lists, uh, Hunger Games Mockingjay part two as filming, um, and he had a role in that. So, you know, who knows, it's sort of like the, the sort of terrible situation that, uh, the Fast and the Furious fran- franchise was in with the the death of Paul Walker, but you know who knows how that's going to be dealt with, right by the by the franchise. Yeah. What were, uh, sorry, Pete, I, I stomped on you. What were you going to say? Oh, just that. Um, just to comment a little bit on the sort of brief comparison between uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, and other people, just to other <laughs> people in general. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to say it because of the I don't want to chili pepper up the podcast with dirty words, but really, screw heroin, man. Like heroin is terrible, and what drugs the drugs do to people is just everybody. It's just terrible. It's just so so awful. And I mean, it is the jo- part of the job of an actor is to communicate to an audience a connection with a an understanding of the experience of a person right which is something that's very difficult to do kind of textually or through any sorts of media um 
And so it is, you know, it is Philip Seymour Hoffman's job. It is Sandra Bullock's job. It was Paul Walker's job. All these other people, their jobs to uh, communicate to us a degree, if not what it was like to be them, then certainly what it was like to be somebody and what that meant, that ex- the, the vivid experience of that thing meant. Um, I don't want to diminish the loss, but um, part of me really hopes to see this as a gateway to understanding the broader range of people who are, who are, I hate to use the word struggling because it turns into such a cliche, who are just being annihilated by this stuff. Just, just thousands of people that you never see just annihilated. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world just annihilated and destroyed and lives just shredded apart by these drugs. And yes, it is definitely very sad. And, and, I, and again, we did a whole podcast when Paul Walker died about how Oh, this is important because we connect with these people. That's what they do. That's their job is to take these stories and to build that human bridge to us. Um, but I would just hope to to see some part of that bridge as a bridge to an understanding of a broader human experience. You know, a no man is an island kind of situation where um, it may be, maybe it's not that he's a tortured genius. Maybe it's that heroin really freaking sucks. Yeah, I, and no, you know, I hate that. I I hate that. I hate that thing. And look, I I happen to have some experience because a lot of my family and like drug addiction runs in families. Yeah. Like a, a lot of people, you know. Um, I mean, take any three rathers, and one of them, you know, is either dead or is in recovery, right? Like from yeah. uh, from drug addiction and. Like, it's not like the creativity doesn't come from the drugs, right? Like the torture genius, uh, 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 the drug use is a symptom, right? It's not a cause of the, of the creativity or the, the like creative edge or artistic edge or, um, you know, compelling nature of what he, uh, uh, of what he managed to produce in his, uh, in his career. And I know, and I, I mean, there's, it's possible to overstate it that way too, because there obviously are things that make people more susceptible to different kinds of behaviors, and these things can also tend to correlate with certain kinds of, you know, impulses or creativity. Man, I'm. This is it's. It's really hard to get from this into cows having sex with other cows. Or <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, sorry, okay. I didn't, well, mean to, <laughs> didn't mean to bring it down. Does someone have a good segue? Yeah, I do actually. So okay. I mean, to, to get us from here to the Super Bowl, right? The, without being too crass about it, I mean, we're talking about like you know a, a major event that happened in our lives that did not have anything to do with football or the crass commercialism. Uh, of uh, of the Super Bowl, right? And uh, it's just sort of you know a reminder that there is life in these United States um, outside of that four hour block of television that everybody watches or while they're eating chicken wings and whatnot. Um, and so I'm really yeah, curious. There's to not know life. About there's not was, life for any chickens. Ah. Huh, indeed. Uh, but what I'm curious to know is, is uh, you know, during that four hour window when the rest of America was uh, doing this thing, Matt Rather was doing this other thing. <laughs> Right. So, like, I, I, I want as we open this conversation with something that happened outside of the Super Bowl, I want to get the window of uh, Matt Rather's life outside of the Super Bowl while that was happening. Right. Like, who are those poor souls who were subjected who were subjected to me? Whatever endeavor that you did that was scheduled uh, during that uh, time block, which is so sacred in America. Right. For chicken wing eating and beer drinking and football watching. Right. What was happening? 
while while I was going on, I I was uh, I was going on in a in a play, a comedy in a sixty seat theater in Santa Monica, California, my hometown. Uh, the the play is called Aspirin and Elephants, and it's a family. It's a sort of family. Uh, comedy about a large Midwestern family taking a cruise ship vacation together. And uh, so the, the, the hours of this play were such that someone who chooses to go to see your play is opting out of watching like a, a large chunk of <laughs> we say, yes the the and the whole cast was pissed off about this by the way right like the, I, there I was assume a, a cast not of like diehard sports fans either just like you know Americans what do you think well right yeah also you know sports fans I mean I'm I was probably the least diehard sports fan uh, of the cast and I kind of wished I was watching the Super Bowl. Um, but hey, work is work. But yeah, we were uh, we went on right at, as the ball was being kicked off. Mm. Like the hey, lights. Can I can I try another segue between yeah. what we've been talking about and the Super Bowl since we haven't <laughs> quite gotten there yet? This one is not going well. Okay, uh, so the loss of Philip Seymour Hoffman is leaving a gap in all of our lives, just as the all the losses that we've all incurred from drug addiction and from people in pain. Uh, leave us uh, the wiser, perhaps, but also the poorer from uh, the absence of friends and loved ones and the pain we see in the eyes of our fellows who've also lost friends and loved ones. Um, hashtag insurance save 30. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to segue into the sad Eli Manning gif. Oh, yeah. I'm going to link up in the as you can see in the pain in Eli Manning's eyes in the the gif of him. Uh, made from the the coverage, uh, the TV coverage on Fox. The um, uh, <laughs> oh, what what a look! He, I mean, this guy. Look at him. He kind of looks like he could be Benedict Cumberbatch. Speaking of great <laughs> actors, <laughs> you know, oh, okay. the guy. The guy is just despondent. Poor guy. And, uh, and anyway, so um, I, I, I gather. One, I, I got one more. Can I do one more segue? It's actually like kind of nice because I feel like I have to disclose something to everybody listening to the podcast right now. Is that all right? Yes. What, Pete, what, are, you go, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? I was actually sort of involved in a Super Bowl ad this year. Yay! Yay! So I'm biased. Like, I have a Super Bowl ad that I was sort of very peripherally involved in this year. And that was, uh, I, as some people may know, and I very, very rarely talk about this on the podcast because it's important to keep barriers in your life in this day and age. And someday we'll do a podcast all about that and lock it in a vault and throw away the key. But I work for Bank of America. And Bank of America is doing this thing with U2 where they are getting they're making a new u2 song available for free on itunes for a day following the super bowl and then if you download the song for free bank of america is making a contribution to the red uh, charity which is a subsidiary charity of the global fund or the one fund the global fund uh against to fight aids and it's expected to be like an eight to ten million dollar uh total fundraise through this through official donations through other channels and through all this other stuff um i'm not going to talk about my own role in sort of like getting this going, socializing it in the, there's a, there's a meetup. There's like a talk about the global AIDS crisis at the Georgetown school of business, uh, last year. That was kind of the origination of this whole thing. Uh, but yeah, I just say that if you're listening to this podcast and it just came out, you can still go to iTunes and get the song for free. Uh, it's a pretty good song. I mean, like whatever, like go get it. But if you get it, then my employer gives money to AIDS people. <laughs> That's a, it's a horrible thing to say. Gives oh, money to help people who are suffering in Africa mostly. You were going, you were going so as well. Much as you, this, you, 
<laughs> especially for your especially for your coming out. I mean, you've actually never mentioned your employer by name. Um, no, no, please forget that I said it. But uh, but I did feel like I had to disclose it because I can't sit very well sit here on this podcast and tell you that you should go to iTunes and download the song without disclosing that these are people who pay me money to do my job. So uh, so please let that kind of like drift and just be a be a silent a thing that we just it's just between you and me guys because i don't want to lose my job over this but I, I do think that it's a worthwhile thing and i wanted to kind of uh especially in the context of this conversation just between you and thousands of strangers on the internet <laughs> ah, you know how it is you know, I'll, be, I'll be happy to inform you that uh, among the eight people uh that i watched the super bowl with uh, varying degrees of sarcasm and snark uh there were no snark comments that that came after that commercial because you know it it was done well and and how can you um be snarky about that sort of thing i mean you know somebody did their job well good cause go support this well bono was on stage rocking hard you know that's yeah uh, i mean so how about this why don't we use that as a segue mark uh, do you think bono rocked in the commercial harder than bruno mars rocked on stage (laughs) (laughs) well i mean if you want to talk about rocking in the sense of like you know being energetic and things like that there were different kinds of rocking going on i think we would need to talk about the rocking of the red hot chili peppers (laughs) that's that that i think is should be the main topic of conversation here because bruno mars i think we all knew sort of what to okay sure we, we knew what to expect from bruno mars i think we we thought we knew what we were going to expect from the red hot chili peppers as well um but less so because Bruno Mars was the focus of the halftime show. He comes busting out with his, you know, smooth R&B sounds and James Brown-esque dance moves. And in the middle of all this, happening, this is happening. We're like, well, where are the Red Hot Chili Peppers? How are the Red Hot Chili Peppers going to factor in into this, uh, you know, amazing display of pop R&B savviness? And we got the answer, which is basically... Uh, in the middle of the show, without any great explanation or segue, the Red Hot Chili Pepper show up. They sing Give It Away Now, and then they stop, and they go away, and then Bruno Mars ends singing the, you know, the soaring ballad that has catapulted him to stardom, Just the Way You Are. Um, so that happened, right? Um, did, did you guys see the same halftime show that I saw? Well, we were mostly playing heads up using our the Android phones. So, I mean, we had it on, but it just looked like a piece of garbage. So, I didn't particularly. Were you guys, were you guys not playing that that Simpsons game that was advertised before? The... No, oh, no, God. I wasn't aware of these. Uh, this is sort of a third screen experience that um, enhances the Super Bowl or distracts from the Super Bowl viewing experience. No, there was just a, a yeah, it's just a. a uh... Yeah, heads up is just like taboo. It's not like it's not like it has anything to do with the Super Bowl. We were oh. just like we were going to play Cards Against Humanity, but it was going to be too much shuffling, and we all had grease on our fingers, so we didn't bother with that. Yeah. Um, so, so okay, here's here, here's my takeaway from from yeah. the Super Bowl halftime show. Um, both performances, in and of themselves, were good. They were competently executed. Um, the combination of the two acts was strange. Um, I was looking back at other past Super Bowl acts, and it seems like, you know, if the artist is big enough and cuts across enough demographics, they'll give the entire show to the artists for, for themselves to, to do as they wish. Beyonce being one example of this. Um, the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, the Who, for example. Other artists have to share the stage. Strangely enough, Madonna was not big enough to sort of have it all to herself. She had various hangers on, including LMFAO, um, Nicki Minaj, MIA, uh, CeeLo Green, and the Avon High School drumline as well, just to, um, to, to share the, the credits for. Um, you know, if you look further back, you know, acts like Paul McCartney had it all to themselves as well. The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, and E Street Band. Uh, but Bruno Mars, 
excuse too young or, or f- f- to have the halftime show all to himself. So they had to bring the older act, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, in. The combination of the two just uh, felt funny to me. It didn't square quite right. And um, I, I, I can't say that like it, it, the two of them added together to create something more than just some of their parts. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had the thing on. I, I was joking about not watching it, but I was watching it, and it was on a big screen of TV right in front of me. And the thing that struck me is there didn't seem to be any sort of driving occasion for this performance. There didn't seem to be anything that it was saying by its presence. Certainly not to the degree that the Beyonce uh, halftime show or the Prince halftime show commanded right. their yeah. own purpose to exist. And so, because it was sort of like the big, most notable thing about the show, I thought, other than the really out of place shirtless dudes, it was it was the ties and the and the uh, and the musical instruments, right? Like it was the uh, the saxophones and the skinny ties and like the level of formality of the Bruno Mars performance, which made the Red Hot Chili Peppers performance look so out of place because <laughs> they were not dressed up. Like they didn't they showed up to the party underdressed, right? And so yeah. if the Bruno Mars performance was going to be about anything, it was going to be sort of of kind of like an old school, smart, casual, semi-formal kind of classiness, I well, guess. I mean, they look like the Temptations. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the thing is that, like, that's not exciting to me personally. So, like, because I'm old enough that I remember the various times that that's come back. Like, you know, I mean, there it's like marginally less interesting than like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy in terms of like wearing ties and playing <laughs> musical instruments, right? Like the ties were more interesting and the musical instruments were more interesting in Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's like, well, what is this saying? Like, like what is the? And I know that the songs are pretty, and but they are also kind of like fairly derivative and, and don't, to me, command a great deal of cultural energy. Maybe it's just, be- maybe if they're the first songs like that you've ever heard, like, do young people really like Bruno Mars? I mean, I get the sense that Bruno Mars spent a lot of his career uh, writing songs that were that were put forward and made successful by other pop stars, right? And, like, part of the reason for that is that he sort of struggled for a long time to find a personal brand that really worked for him, and I wonder if, to a degree, that struggle is still apparent in the kind of, uh, the kind of confusion of this kind of show. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, if we're looking for a sort of a broader narrative to write about the halftime show, um, it's that of risk aversion in an interesting way. And I, and I say that in particular in light of what happened 10 years ago at the Super Bowl halftime show. Does anybody remember February 1st, 2004? I think that was when uh, – it wasn't, wasn't that when John Kerry threw his medals over a fence or something? No, it, that's a horrible <laughs> – that was, that, was, that was the uh, costume reveal. The wardrobe oh. malfunction. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. Swift boat veterans for boob. That's right. No, <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was that MTV was responsible for producing uh, the show. Uh, they were very intentionally risque about it, you know, in terms of the subject matter and the, and the dancing and things like that. Um, and the, the wardrobe malfunction happened. Everybody freaked out. There was a collective American moral panic. And what happens the year after that, 2005? Paul McCartney, right? Yep. What follows that is a string of nostalgia rock acts that include the Stones, Bruce, Drinks, Bruce Springsteen, wait, Tom wait, wait, Petty. You're, you're eliding uh, February 4th, 2007, when Prince strummed his devil schlong in a, <laughs> <laughs> right, in a shadow play of, uh, you know, I don't know. Epic proportions. Monogatarian proportions. Look, look, okay, all right. It wasn't not a devil schlong, right? But God forbid, <laughs> God forbid that any female boobage, 
right? Or the suggestion of female boob that shows up on television. So devil schlong, okay, but uh, Janet Jackson's uh, boob covered in pasty, not okay. I just think the Super Bowl people forgot that Prince is actually a compelling musician and thought that he was going to be an oldies singer, right? Like, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. Prince never really stopped doing his own thing, did he? We just sort of forgot about him. <laughs> He's like still out there doing his own thing. But yeah, no, uh, I, I think Mark does. The, the, the example does not thoroughly refute the overall trend. I mean, there was also a big change in production companies. It wasn't just that like the people running it changed their minds. It was the people who running it went on to spend more time with their families or work on other projects <laughs> and, and were replaced by people who were really excited for the opportunity to work for such an excellent organization as the NFL or what have you. <laughs> um, so yes, but there was, there was a, there was a big jump towards things that were more conservative and it sort of continues, you know, and this was a very conservative show. Um, certainly, I felt like the Macklemore interviews leading up to the Super Bowl were like more risque. Certainly, Joe Namath's fur coat during the coin toss was like <laughs> more risque than Bruno Mars's like show with Anthony Kiedis and Flea rocking out. Um, especially because he had to top, turn, uh, toss the coin twice, which was like horribly disruptive. If you think about what that means for you know truth, um, the Super Bowl, what happened? What would have happened if that coin that he had actually uh-huh. had landed? A whole different world would like. Gwyneth Paltrow would have had long hair. It would have been crazy. Oh, God. Dan, yeah, and Dan Harmon has written an episode about it already. About that <laughs> yeah, multiple exactly. Community did it. Community did it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think that's all there is to say about the, the Super Bowl halftime show well, itself. It's, I mean, like, it's almost it time is... to wrap the podcast, and we haven't even gotten into the commercials yet. All right. So <laughs> now can we talk about the cows that are having sex with other cows? <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Uh, I, I uh, mean, yes, can, you I, can, yes. can I tell you my favorite commercial? I I loved the that Budweiser did a parody of Carmack's slow clap commercial that involved a soldier coming home from Afghanistan. <laughs> you said that. I don't know if you're joking. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind None of, of I'm kind of joking. Real. Hashtag <laughs> insurance thirty. Nothing is real. Hashtag insurance thirty or save thirty. I don't even know. Insurance twenty four. Jack Bauer. Jack is back. Hashtag hashtag. Uh, <laughs> what is that? I yogurt. You what? know, I, I recently have had cause to come into contact with a social media consultant, and um, I don't know if you think my tweeting has gotten better. Uh, follow me at Matt at, at M Rather. Uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> I uh, I don't understand hashtags. I mean, right? To, has anyone ever searched for a hashtag or clicked on one? Has anyone ever like surfed for a hashtag or clicked on one and read more than the top three uh, posts about it? Has anyone done all of that and then like gone to page three and found their new favorite website or brand or Twitter personality from doing that? I mean, I I, I think the point of a hashtag is that that you sell advertising against them on Twitter. So if someone searches for a hashtag, they're guaranteed to see your little hundred forty character ad at the top of the feed that that comes up. But that seems like an awfully convoluted Rube Goldberg machine to get a really tiny marketing message to someone. I mean, on one hand, I'll tell you the last time I searched on her hashtag. <laughs> oh, God. And it was for the game, hashtag the game. Because as people do have known much longer than they've known the name of my employer, whom hopefully they've already forgotten, uh, they, they knew that we went to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and Yale played Harvard this year in a game, that, a football game that is always affectionately known as the game. Oh, the this, this, was, this was one of the years where they played Harvard? 
<laughs> yeah, well, they, they, they played the Harvard the same way the Broncos played the Seahawks. <laughs> like, like, both logos were on the program, but I don't think both teams were on the field. <laughs> but anyway, um, the point was that I searched for hashtag the game like I was suggested to in all the materials, and half the tweets were about people who are Yale or Harvard alumnus, alumni, alumnae, you know, like talking about the game. And the other half were about people watching a marathon of the, uh, uh, the young people uh, – serial drama The Game on BET, which is about uh, athletes and their girlfriends, well, uh, and stars, <laughs> among many people, uh, Tia of Tia and Tamara fame, uh, as, as involved in a series of very heart-wrenching uh, romantic problems. With sure, their- actually, so, so there, that was one portion of the non-Yale Harvard-related um, r- tweets, hashtag The Game, right? The others were about the rapper The Game, and others also were about um, uh, the game in which men tried to get women to have sex with them. Well, no, but by far the most popular was the BET show, which you wouldn't necessarily have thought. Uh, but that's that's the kind of insularity that the internet offers us. But yeah, no, I, mean, I think the real reason is is that um, all the whole the whole advertising industry operates around metrics, and you have to be able to prove that you've had some sort of impact in order to charge money for it. And so you need to be able to search on the internet in some way to to be able to demonstrate that you've had some sort of impact. And a hashtag just sort of makes it easier for you to search for it sure right like so i mean it doesn't really give well, you an idea but it gives you the illusion of an idea that right, right. and that i mean a lot of the advertising in the super bowl is sort of brand advertising which is yeah. is meant to increase like what favorability or yeah. you know we're like to- several steps ahead of purchase consideration yeah yeah, yeah. Like, we're not talking about like kia is not trying to use the morpheus ad to sell kias to people who are currently looking to buy luxury cars kia is using the morpheus ad to try to sell kias to people who are currently like software engineers or middle or like burgeoning middle managers who are going to be buying a luxury car in five to ten years right like and they want people to think of kia as the luxury brand that gets them right more than five like ten years right like they want these people when they're in like their 50s and 40s to be buying to be buying kias people who like the matrix so they have to build it from the ground up right like they don't care whether you buy it now um, that's why there was no pricing on it. Yeah, I want to come back to the yeah, or no model name, second, but yeah. just one yeah. last thing about the hashtags and social media in, in commercials, right? And what we're seeing is is are these brands just their way of saying, you know, like we are with it, we are with the the hot newness that's coming out now. Um, as opposed to this very you know direct thing where they're trying to get people to tweet there in a tweet to the hashtag. Right. Um, the last time I looked at social media demographics across the United States, um, something of like 10 percent of Americans are on Twitter compared to 80 to 90 percent on Facebook. Right. Like the numbers we're talking about here, especially when we're talking about advertising, are not so great. Right. I mean, like the, the- uh, you don't really you got to figure advertisers don't really care about everybody equally. The thing that advertisers are going after in these are people that are referred to in the industry as influencers. They, the advertisers, when they're especially when they're building brands and how people understand brands are looking to change the minds of people who influence other people mm. because they know that people don't actually build their opinions of, of products off of commercials. They better build their opinions of products off of word of mouth and off of, you know, the experiences that they have in their lives. So you go on Twitter because that's where the influencers are, not, not because that's where the general population is. The, the general population is going to follow whatever the people on Twitter eventually decide to do anyway, but it'll just, there'll be like a lag effect, right? Like that where eventually those people will sort of mediate and talk about it and stuff. Right. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that some middle managers are looking for cars in the next 18 to 24 months. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what I'm saying, well, a good example, right, is, uh, is like the, the, the Honda Hug commercial. Is, is a is a really good example, right? Like, uh, like if because I don't know if you, I thought that was one of my, that was my favorite commercials in the whole in the whole thing. I love the Honda hug commercial. I got a big hug from a girlfriend. I kind of wanted our whole room to hug. Afterwards, the whole room, a couple people commented that they'd wished the whole room had hugged, and we felt like we missed an opportunity because we didn't. Um, but like that's the kind of thing where that creates a story that people would tell. That creates something that a year from now people will remember. That creates like a positive impression. Like if you're looking to write an article down the line about how much you hate evil car corporations, you might be a little bit less inclined to write it about Honda because you remember the hug commercial and for some reason there's some sort of vague sense of hugness. Now, granted, you... They don't care whether they've convinced the thousand random people, but they care if they've convinced the one person who's going to write an article about cars, right? Like, or the one person who's going to be like, you know, I guess, especially a lot of luxury brands at the Super Bowl, not everybody is going to be buying those luxury brands, right? Like, you're looking to buy the people who are cool in town, uh, get those people to buy, and the people who have all the money, you know, like, those are the people that you want to influence. I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart a little bit because I'm just a little bit worn out, but like, that sort of explains it a little bit, right? Like, it's like, hit create feelings that matter to people who will then talk about them later right sure. like that's what it's about you create good feelings right you know yeah and i think well, I not think, necessarily good feelings Sometimes okay bad- so the the honda ad seems like create some good feelings for you it's, yeah. it seems like the uh the kia matrix ad did not create such good feelings in us though right I mean, I, I didn't mind it because I love a good Nessendorma. Like, you know, I'm, if you've never seen Man of Wars Nessendorma in Milan, I really recommend it. Go check it out. <laughs> did that, I mean, I mean, did that have the effect? To me, that had the effect of like really undercutting, uh, especially because of how, like, I, I, I don't know how scenery chewing uh, Lawrence Fishburne got with it. Like the the jiggles in his lips as he was lip syncing to the. Um, uh, uh, to the track, like was I don't know. It sort of undercut the thing. Like I, I like I get that Kia sort of associated with luxury and a kind of a new, uh, almost sort of globalized luxury, right? Like luxury for people who go to the topless orgy that is in the second Matrix movie, right? But no, um, well, Kia isn't associated with luxury at all. That's the point. Right, 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 right. Kia is associated with cheap cars. That is like I think if you were to survey people and what they think of Kia, they think that Kia cars are cheap and they're probably like don't last for very long. Yeah, right? it's what people used to think about Hyundai and probably still think a little bit about uh, a lot about Hyundai as well. But Hyundai is a little bit further along in in, in changing their position in the car market. Yeah. I think. I mean, ultimately, I think the Matrix Act. I don't know. It probably won't be that effective in terms of doing what they're trying okay. to do. So let's talk about what about some issues with the Matrix Act, right? Yeah. The first being um, now, if you remember um, way back in the '90s when you saw the Matrix, right? Um, uh, Morpheus offers Neo well, one pill, another pill, and one pill. You take the pill, and it gets you to see reality, right? The world for as it actually is. Um, however, in the context, okay, in the context of a film, when you've suspended a lot of disbelief and are really in the world, that makes a lot of sense, right? In the context of a short commercial that is back to back to back to back with a bunch of other commercials and some football, um, you're like, okay, sure, I, I'm going to. <laughs> let's person this commercial is telling me to see the world as it really is, where I'm just so totally surrounded by advertising, and I, there's no way that I just sort of like lose myself in the worlds uh, of advertising, right? So that's my problem number one with it. Problem number two, Matt, you said that. Um, uh, that uh, how Lawrence Fishburne was chewing up the scenery when he was singing Ness and Dorma was taking you out of it. Well, the fact that Ness and Dorma is being sung at all is just totally out of step with the entire Matrix theme of this as well. And that's taking me 
out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like they said, the, the the it's basically um, breaking the tonal consistency with the original reference to the Matrix. That makes the whole thing just kind of a mess for me. Yeah. So, like a, a commercial that tried something similar, right? Which had like when it when it, it took multiple different pop culture, um, I want to say tonals, like roots, right? Like sort of if you have a root pop culture symbol that's like in your commercial and you're trying to combine different ones. So you're saying that, you know, Italian opera and the matrix are two different symbols and it's difficult to put them in the same commercial. I thought that the Terry Crews and the Muppets commercial with for the Highlander, right. Did a great job. I thought of making those two things come together. Right, like so Terry mm-hmm. Crews is yeah. one specific sort of pop culture icon. I mean, associated with like Old Spice, associated with the Expendables, marketing to teenagers and and men, sort of age like you know eighteen to fifty, right? Like uh, eighteen to even fifty five or sixty. Um, he has that sort of he has some crossover appeal in that regard. And then the Muppets, of course, which have like which branch over to other genders, you know, cisgendered and otherwise, um, and which have like again appeal to older people, but also appeal to younger people. I felt like the the, the, the performance that Terry Crews gave when he was in the car with the Muppets while they were singing and his character arc traversed that, that gap between thoroughly uncomfortable with the, with the Muppets carjacking his car to like, <laughs> it like you know, shirtless and rising from his sunroof, like, like telling everyone about what a wonderful experience he had with the Muppets. Like there was a really credible arc there i felt now it was presentationalist like it was he wasn't reaching for verisimilitude yeah he, he wasn't he like, wasn't ready to show up alongside robert sean leonard and philip seymour hoffman and you know in yeah, uh, long day's journey or something right like but. no 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 this was a short day's journey into the driveway not a long day's journey into the night. it was a short day's journey into muppets and that's what he did and i and i felt thought that like in terms of with the Highlander, like who are you, who are you marketing that to? And it's like, well, it's sort of a light sport utility vehicle. You're trying to get it to people who might buy like a Subaru Outback or something like that, right? Like, but maybe also could be convinced, or people who are maybe buying a larger car, and you might want to be able to get them to scale it down a little bit. But it's cute, it's approachable, it's fun. Went against the idea that sport utility vehicles are something that dumb people buy, or that like conservative people buy, right? Like but that only super masculine people buy. Well, that's probably a better way of saying it. It's not to say dumb people. Like, the people who were tickled by the sort of irony of the Highlander ad, and who are not the same people who are going to be impressed by the gravitas of the like, hey, you should buy this car because this woman has cancer ad, right? Like um, they're not the same people. Um, so we can sort of speak to each person in a way that would complement who they might be. Um, right. Like, oh, can I we, mean, can yeah. we talk about the, the, the cancer truck ad? Yeah, that, sure. That happened. Right. And all, all, everything sort of passed by so quickly and I didn't quite fully process it, except the end was like, they're trying to use cancer to sell trucks, aren't they? Yes, that's true. Was, it, was that for the all? I don't even remember what truck podcast. it was. I don't even remember what truck it was that they were trying. I mean, I feel bad because I probably should have, but like there was just this weird I was a weird moment. It was kind of a quiet commercial. I think I was eating a really excellent chicken wing. Uh, and I, I just I just don't quite exactly remember which car that cancer commercial was advertising. And I think that that speaks to sort of how that commercial didn't really impact me as much in terms of establishing a brand identity for the truck. Uh, or was it a truck or was it a car? I think I think, it was a truck. I think it was a truck. Um, I mean, yeah, Chevy was all over it, but so was Ford. Like, uh, you know, a bunch of other truck stuff was in there too. Um, yeah, I don't know. My, my life is a blur of car commercials, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, what was the one? The freaking, the freaking uh, uh, Doberwawa, uh, Do- Doberwawa, which was such a wonderful commercial. Uh, like, you remember the Doberwawa commercial with yeah, Sarah McLaughlin? No, in no it? compromise. 
right? Yeah. Com- compromise is bad, and therefore you should drive an Audi, I think. Yeah, like the instant that it changed to show Audi, everyone in the room went, oh, <laughs> because we were all like, oh, they tricked us. We thought this was <laughs> going to be a fun commercial because the guy was wearing some sort of logo. The guy at the pet store was wearing a, um, a polo with a logo for some sort of pet-related business. And I was really hoping that this was going to be some sort of pet website or like pet services thing, you know, about dogs. And then when it revealed that it was a car commercial, like I just felt so betrayed. I mean, it won me over. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, good show, Audi, but I'm not, I'm still pissed at you for, for doing this, for being yet another car that's trying let another like luxury brand even that's trying to like well, squeeze squeeze time out I, I think you're hitting on another trend that um i i was noticing a lot in this year's super bowl ads and i think it's been around for quite some time which is that they're just trying to hold off the reveal for what product they're talking about as late as possible yes right? because they're trying to um uh, you know keep the eye the very um captive audience that they have they're trying to keep those eyeballs on the screen and paying attention as long as possible and then reveal uh, the, the reveal it late enough so that you know they they paid attention to the whole thing, but it's not so late that the, the mention of the product itself is so fast that they forget about it, right? Well, Which, they're, I mean, tr- the, they're the trying- cancer truck ad had that problem, right? We don't remember what the yeah. What, what well, they, what right? they're trying to do is they're trying to conjure a certain emotional state, and then they're trying to associate the memory of the emotional state with the product, which is why bad things happen to people who use our products, commercials happen, because you're trying to associate the anxiety with the product, with the assumption that you're going to like, when I feel the anxiety, I'm going to want to buy the product. So it's like, oh, um, Michelob, you know, not, it's not, Michelob didn't actually do this, but let's assume they did. Michelob did a commercial about a guy whose wife hates him, and so he drinks Michelob, and the commercial ends with him drinking a whole bunch of Michelob and passing out on the couch and his wife hating him. And it's like, well, that doesn't tell me the good things happen to people who drink Michelob. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, but for people who are in bad marriages, it makes them think of Michelob more frequently, right? Like, and that's kind of the point. So <laughs> if, if, if you have a preconceived notion of what Audi is and they bring that up at the beginning and they show you Audi at the beginning of the ad, it's going to conjure your preconceived notion of what Audi is and that's going to be the framing through which you're going to see the rest of the commercial. By showing you the dog first, they, give, they put you in a frame of mind, they set up the emotional state, and then they put the logo on in the hopes that your emotional state that's been established – is going to be connected to the brand, right? Like, and then right. thus yeah. you sort of get around your preconceived feelings about what the brand represents. Because I'll tell you, I, I, did, I do not generally, just as a matter of course, think of Honda as the brand where Fred Armiston hugs Bruce Willis, right? Like, you know, but now I do, right? Because they, they primed it. It's, it's psychological. It's yeah, well, yeah, yeah. sure. Like, um, I mean, yeah, there was some talk earlier this year about a, a broad uh, challenge to some of the psychological experiments that proved this sort of thing is effective. Um, that supposedly there was kind of like – I hesitate to call it a witch hunt because I don't really have the uh, insider's idea of how um, worthwhile or how credible it was. But there were a bunch of people going through – in particular, psychological experiments and trying to demonstrate that they weren't repeatable and thus discrediting the academic careers of some very storied uh, psych- uh, psychological faculty and psycho- psychologists out there in the field. Um, and, and like people who were kind of resting on their laurels who had founded entire sub-branches of their schools and showing that their sort of initial experiments were not repeatable and not showing the same kinds of results and thus like might have been uh, just fabricated and thus everything that's descended from them might also be kind of fabricated. One of those things is this idea of priming, this idea of like setting up images that change a person's way of thinking about a product, right? Or about, about an idea. I mean, obviously the experiment was about a product, but just that whole phenomenon in general has been under yeah. some question. But certainly advertisers believe it works and a lot of 
these commercials. Yeah, commercials so along those lines. you're hitting up an interesting thing um, about just the, the the field of advertising and how we approach how these things are made and how um, uh, how we're supposed to uh, think about uh, how this, this, the sauces of, of commercials are made. Right? I think on one hand, we think that um, the folks who are putting these these messages together are extraordinarily sophisticated, um, have access to this you know body of psychological research and things like that. Um, and I, I'm reminded a little bit of the junk food scientists. This is not quite the same thing, but I think it's related. The junk food scientists who are so good at their jobs that they can engineer the crispness of a potato chip to the exact uh, right level and the saltiness of it that just makes you keep wanting to eat more and more and more and more, right? Yes. Uh, so so that I, there's a similar thing there, what you talked about with the, the psychological experiments and the, um, the, the insights into consumer behavior and things like that that I think go into um, that... that part of our at least my imagination of, of these ad men these people who are putting these commercials together uh, that that's 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 one part of it right so the other part of it though is just this like crazy sense of like throw crap at the um uh, throw, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks going on so it's like just like spitballing of ideas and then the craziest ones coming out just sort of win the day and some of them uh, uh are, are wildly successful and other of them fail spectacularly right like like the kia matrix ad for example right and i think both of those things are are happening more or less at the same time but it's interesting that um at least for myself that i, I have these sort of two very polar opposite ideas of advertising happening uh, and and still consider both of them to be uh to, to be at play I mean, I think to a degree it's important to remember that both of these things are happening. These people certainly don't think they're spitballing ideas. These things have been tested within an inch of their lives by many very highly paid professionals who have come up with all sorts of data to support that these advertisements are going to affect people in various ways. So they don't think that they're spitballing. But then at the same at the end of the day, how much do you really know is the question, right? Like and at the end of the day, you don't really know. Right. So, I mean, yes, there's sort of the play for there's the play for what catches on. But there's also the play that like we are looking to create certain metrics and certain goals. So basically, like one of the most important things to do in the in the advertising business is to create the illusion of certainty that your stuff is working (laughs) Um, (laughs) to basically like to be able to sell that, you know, that that you are signal and not noise. Right, that, that you are causally related to things that happen that are favorable to your clients. And I, I think that it's, it's silly to think that advertising doesn't help businesses or else businesses wouldn't pay for it anymore, I think. I think that's a fairly decent way of looking at it. It's not the best. So, yeah, the relationship with randomness, with taking chances, is a complicated one. And, and uh, I don't know, my own sort of little, little uh, look into how it all worked, it showed a great deal of deliberation, a, gr- a mm-hmm. tremendous deal of deliberation. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would uh, I would say that there's definitely thought that is put into these things, and it's not just sort of like, hey, let's just put Morpheus in this because we think he's funny. I mean, he or, might not have like, even been their yeah. first choice. Maybe they tried to negotiate with like four other people, and he was the one that they managed to get. You know, like I don't know. I mean, that's not. I'm not saying that's what happened in my experience because that's not what happened in my experience. But um, maybe but, but, that happened there. But one other thing about the, the Matrix ad, I, I don't know. For some reason, this one is like really sticking out uh, to me the, the most, and from my memory of the of different ads. Um, is that this is not the first time that we've seen a Matrix-themed advertisement recently. Um, Agent Smith, uh, the Hugo Weaving character, Hugo Weaving reprises role as Agent Smith for a commercial for GE to advertise connected hospitals, like healthcare technology. They're all cashing in on it. 
right? I mean, like, so there's a combination of uh, the, the people who own the Matrix IP being willing to uh, license uh, to you know put it up for commercials, and then these ad these uh, actors being willing to reprise their roles uh, from this one particular movie that had quite the impact in uh, what 1999. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of that's an age thing, right? Just like the the, the people who um, were what the high school and college at that time are now um they're basically like our age right are entering in their 30s and their mid to uh, you know early mid late 30s and are an important ad uh, demographic to advertise to mm-hmm. and that sort of thing um and so now we have uh Lawrence Fishburne uh, singing Nathan Dorma as Ikea soars through the air <laughs> I guess it's yeah. us I mean right like it's us who who are the the target for that ad and people None of us make enough money <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just, not even to buy a Kia. Yeah, <laughs> man. So yeah, so guys, share the podcast with your friends. So kids, and start give us a over. Start rating on, on iTunes <laughs> so that we can buy a Kia, so that we can be cool like like Morpheus. Um, can I? Yeah, I mean, can I? I don't know. Did, did no one? Was no one else struck with the juxtaposition of this slow clap ad for the the guy who bought the Carmax car, and the sort of the unironic slow clap or the unself conscious. Slow clap for the the um, I don't know. It looked it looked like a hidden camera ad, sort of, or a, like we surprised a real person with a parade in his hometown ad that Budweiser did for uh, about you know soldiers coming home from from deployment, right? Like I thought it I thought it had an I thought it had an effect that that really sort of undercut a lot of the it it had an alienating effect i thought the carmax ad especially those two ads taken in juxtaposition had um the carmax ad had on the budweiser ad because like you, you it 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 sort of points it lampshades how artificial um these things are right and how their claims to their claims to legitimacy are are crap Right and and that uh, I don't know you shouldn't you should sort of shouldn't believe or really be affected by stuff that that happens on uh, in in television ads. I don't know it had it had that effect for me of sort of taking yeah. what was meant to be a sort of poignant uh, advertisement that was meant to sort of associate Budweiser with. Um, uh, what I don't know, old-fashioned American values, patriotism, small town, uh, small town life—you know, stuff that we can all, yeah. you know, national service, like stuff that we can all get behind, sacrifice, noble, nobility, honor, um, and, and you know, families being reunited, and who's not for that? Uh, it, it, it right, like associating that with Budweiser. I hadn't drawn the connection between the CarMax commercial and the Budweiser, uh, you know, returning hero commercial um i was just more struck by the fact that well budweiser is using our war to sell beer and uh they have found a way to make that palatable and damn no that's that's not they're not doing that so uh, they're not they're not using the war to sell beer they're using the soldiers right to try to improve the reputation of their company uh so i mean the reason i i I don't want to go into what my own sort of perspective on it but um but basically there's been a lot of research over the course of the last 10 years to show that trust in large institutions has just 
totally been annihilated and diminished. I mean, I use an, I'm using the same word for the diminishment in trust of corporations as I did for like deaths to heroin overdose, and for that I sincerely apologize. But um, but yeah, that like that trust is greatly diminished in large institutions, but that one of the few institutions in the United States that has actually increased in terms of the general public trusting it since the 70s is the military. So the military, and also the military, uh, people have been under a lot of strain. There are a lot of returning veterans. So it is, if you associate yourself with helping returning veterans, you are associating yourself with something that people already like. And the reason that you are doing this is because you are a large corporation and by default, people don't like you. So you need to figure out some way of, of orienting your very existence. So like, so like the, 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 the troops thing isn't about selling beer. It's about selling Anheuser-Busch as, as like a company, as like an idea, right? Um, the beer, the ones that actually sell you the beer are going to actually like show you the beer and like, you know, they're going to have like the feelings and, and tastes that are associated with beer, but it's much more about kind of like rehabilitative work for cor- corporate, uh, for corporate ideas. I mean, like, I mean, honestly, the AIDS thing is the same thing. You're trying to show that you can be a good thing for people and you're trying to figure out what people care about. All right. And it's like, and it, it you know, to a greater or lesser degree, the definition of good becomes complicated when you're talking about businesses and you're talking about money and you're talking about like an, an, an instrumental good, a good that exists for a purpose. You are trying to be good because then people will like you. And if people liked you for different reasons, you would do different things. But in this day and age, people want you to be good. Or if you're a larger institution, they want you to be associated with other large institutions that they like, among which the military is pretty much the only one in America. Um, and, which is weird, and but it happens. So, so I would say that, like, I wouldn't say that they're exploiting the soldiers to sell beer. I will say that they're basically like they're trying to do community service. Uh, the same reason that anybody trying to put community service on a resume is putting it on their resume because they they that's the way in which they are they're thinking in terms of their own well being, and they are trying to say how can I position myself as a better person to the people who care if I am a better person, right? Like, and and so it's both. Ethical and non-ethical at the same time. It's yeah, very complicated. I, I, on one hand, I was being too glib, and I was saying that you know Budweiser is using the war to sell beer. Uh, on the other hand, like I, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling that cynical right now. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, the, okay, the, okay, the so, Bob Dylan one can freaking go jump oh, off a cliff. That Bob Dylan commercial was a freaking travesty. Oh, that was awful. Uh, that was just the worst. I mean, I know that, I, and I totally buy what Matt is saying in terms of the juxtaposition of those two ads showing you the absurdity of all the ads. And the freaking insurance freaking 30 thing can just just drown in a, in a freaking, that can have its like, its like ankles spiked together with a pinion and left on a mountaintop to die of exposure as far as I'm concerned in the manner of an unwanted like ancient Greek child. But uh, <laughs> not that I didn't tweet it because I sure did tweet it, but, uh, but it can go kill itself. Um, uh, but but the, uh, the the Dylan thing, I mean, you know, the voice of, of protest of a generation informing you of the virtues of purchasing from this particular giant multinational manufacturing corporation. Yeah, also with the, 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 the incredible profound statement that um, I think it went something along the lines of, like, what makes America great is America. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, buy your phone for me. Let Asians make your phone. Let us make your car. Thanks, Bob Dylan. I'm sure you worked at a lot of factories in your life. <laughs> like, and, you know, and even then, like, you know, like, 
let us let us have the privilege of working for the giant, you know, the giant apparatus that delivers your transportation apparatus to you, right? Like it's uh, it's a long way from blonde on blonde, son. Uh, but yeah, who am I to say? I've certainly changed a lot in the last like ten years of my life since the nipple slip in the halftime show. I've changed a great deal as a person. I can't say that Bob Dylan isn't allowed to change merely because he stood for so much. Yeah. He doesn't really care about fighting the man anymore to the degree that he ever really did. I don't know. Pete, I don't. I, I, don't, I, I got a question for you. I say, yeah. How many cars must one person drive before he's forever changed? The answer, my friend, is in a Chrysler 200. The answer is in a Chrysler 200. I'm gather around children and hear how it's told. How this t- the, the anti-log brakes kept your wheels from the roll. <laughs> Steel safety cage kept your head in the mold. <laughs> and you're, as you're driving along open ranges... But you know that this brand will be here by your side because of Chrysler, they aren't changing. I don't know. I, uh, William, William Zanzinger him. killed poor Hattie Carroll with a deal that he found on a Chrysler LeBaron. <laughs> <laughs> Did he do He didn't do Why Don't They Do It in the Road, right? <laughs> no, that was. He, it would be about cows having sex with each other in some cars. <laughs> or that horse having sex with that dog. <laughs> there was another. I mean, that was another Chevy ad. The the the, uh, the hey cancer buy a car was a Chevy <laughs> ad, and the um, and and also the cows. I think the cows doing it was also a also a Chevy ad. Can I speak about one of the advertisers who I think did a really good job at this Super Bowl? Sure. Yes, let's end on a on a high. Uh, so I actually really liked what uh, Beats by Dre did in this Super Bowl. I thought they were very smart. Um, so Why was there Dre, a wolf in the bear's house? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sorry. I can't get past it. Why were there four animals? When Ellen looked up, she found the headphones that were just right. One was, yep. you know, uh, I, I forget. One was too loud. One was too country. And the third was was dubbed. The, the teenager's move was dubstep. But then the wolf's headphones were just right. I don't understand, Look, Pete. There's a key demographic, which is Starks, ages 17 to 35. <laughs> Winter is coming, and they're going to need headphones to make it through the winter, all right? So, but no, it wasn't just the Ellen ad, which I felt like was solid. Well, the notable thing about the Ellen ad is, of course, that Beats by Dre comes with it in association with hip-hop, particularly with, you know, I want to say urban people, but really I mean African Americans or black people, because let's you know let's be realistic about what this means. Like that that Beats by Dre is a huge business, and they their expansion, their oppor- just as Coca Cola's opportunity for expansion is with like multicultural people. Beats by Dre's opportunity for expansion is with like the the majority, like the large group of people who aren't in the sort of niche uh, the niches that uh, that are already buying these headphones, right? So they they're looking for the Ellen crowd, um, which is not necessarily people who are like Ellen, but people that Ellen entertains. But the thing that I liked about Beats by Dre was not just the commercial. 
early on in the Super Bowl, there were images of the Fox robot wearing Beats by Dre headphones that were played uh, alongside some of the in bumps and out bumps to commercials. And I even caught some footage early on before the game started of people on the sidelines at the Super Bowl wearing Beats by Dre headphones. And I felt that if your goal with your, your campaign here for Beats by Dre was to say, like, this is a headphone that you could also wear. This is not just a headphone that people who like rap wear. Right, like this is a headphone that that everybody can use and is is fun and is good. Then having it actually at the game, and maybe I, I mean it's possible I missaw it, but I'm pretty sure I saw somebody at the game wearing Beats by Dre headphones. That the camera caught them, and you got a great shot of the logo. And I'm pretty sure that they showed the actual robot endorsing a product, which I haven't seen before, other than of course like shields in general, uh, which it carries for some reason as a football robot. Uh, the the uh, robots uh, promote a Terminator. Oh, yeah. So they're all about the Chronicles. This is where I betray that I don't watch a lot of football. (laughs) I watch on Red Zone where I don't see the Fox in bumps and out bumps as much. Um, and yeah, but anyway, so the robot has endorsed things before. But anyway, I thought that that was sort of a nice, ra- nicely rounded approach to getting that core message out. And I felt like it was unobtrusive and it made its point and it didn't have to take the risks that Mark's talking about in terms of spitballing crazy ideas because it knew it was, what it was trying to accomplish. And I felt like I admired how it approached uh, the night uh, strategically. That in the nation of Canada, as somebody held a giant Canadian flag right by the goalpost, so they got a ton of free advertising. <laughs> so, I mean, did Mark, did you like any of the ads a lot? Do you think they did good jobs? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just so, so full of, uh, of ire and spite right now that I'm not recalling ones. That did you not? I, okay, I, no, 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 okay. I will give GoDaddy credit for not, like, using naked women to sell uh, hosting, internet hosting service. I will give them credit for actually trying to do something a little bit interesting with their advertisement. I will not, under any circumstances, use their products at any time in the near future, nor recommend them to anybody who's interested in internet hosting, web hosting, domain registration, or anything of that sort. Um, but, sure, credit where credit is due. Go, Daddy. You, you're not as horrible as you used to be. Okay. I, I, uh, I might have puddled up a little bit when I heard... Um when I heard children of all the colors of the rainbow singing America, the beautiful in different, uh, languages, mm-hmm. you know, that, cool. well, you're their target audience. They, they really are underrepresented in the, uh, the, the bougie stage actors of Los Angeles. Yeah. in the white guy, in the white guy, uh, <laughs> white guy, you know, 33 to 33 demographic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought it was interesting. Bud, uh, Budweiser and Bud Light actually have kind of a Coke Pepsi thing going on within the same, the same company, right. With how they were being positioned, how the brands were being positioned with Bud Light being the sort of young, uh, up for anything party brand and, uh, Budweiser being the, you know, Hey, this, this, uh, this yellow lab really loves a Clydesdale. Um, yeah. Uh, well, mean, it's a good fences have good, good fences make good neighbors situation where in order for them to coexist at the same company, they have to have clearly delineated separate, uh, agendas and missions, right? But like, that's, I mean, right. That's an interesting, that's an interesting sort of thing, right? You don't, you don't see Coke going after that, you know, wouldn't it, I mean, wouldn't it be great for Coke to, uh, introduce a product that was just the young, the young, co- like Coke Extreme or something, and just. Uh, yes, you know it's called Mountain Dew, Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. That's Pepsi. Pepsi makes Mountain Dew. Uh, oh, it's the I don't know what the equivalent for. They all have these different these different drinks that they do, right? Like, well, vitamin water Coke owns, right, and it positions that to do that. Yeah, I guess now, it just it just use the same brand name for all of them, right? Like, uh, 
it's it, there's different words for it. Anyway, I'm uh, sorry, well, yeah, I, I guess I mean I guess right. Like it's it's not Coke vitamin water. I guess having Budweiser, Budweiser, and Bud Light. You know, we're we're a long we're a long way from the the you know light beer just being the, trying to piggyback on the brand identity of its uh, of the what the full calorie beer, uh, but being slightly less tasty. Um, it, they now they now have graduated to their own brand identity. Yeah, I mean the the. Uh... The big poster child for this is what, like, French's mustard, right? Where French's sure. um, mustard, you know, everybody used to buy French's mustard all the time, but then other variants started popping up of mustard, like Grey Poupon and other sorts of things. And so French's lost a ton of market share over time. And people realized that what they needed to do was they just needed to launch their own competition, right? Like, they needed to create the illusion of variety, right? Or like the impression of variety. I mean, that's what Facebook does with constantly changing its interface, right? Is that uh-huh. it's like, it's trying to, it's trying to create the illusion that you're buying a different product sure. or that you're paying different people uh, for what you're getting because you are getting sort of a different product but you're you're also like you're the, you know you're keeping the same customer when they think that they're changing who they're working whoa, with. Whoa, P, whoa, are you are you talking about leaving Facebook again? Hashtag insurance save thirty. <laughs> Look, it would take a lot more than that to pull me away from. Fa- it would take it would take a huge international incident, the like of which the world has never seen. Hashtag insurance save 24. Insurance <laughs> save 24. That's what you should tweet. No one's going to give you money, but Jack Bauer might save your life. Well, so guys, you uh, I, I'm afraid that we don't have time for more podcasts. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's wrap there. If you have anything you want to say on about the uh, Super Bowl ad, leave a comment on the show notes for this uh, episode. If you would like to leave in appreciation of Philip Seymour Hoffman, maybe we'll start a forum thread for that in the Overthinking It forums at overthinkingit.com slash forums. Um, maybe that would be the the, the right venue um, for that sort of thing. We'll be back next week. Uh, until then, you can, you know, tweet with hashtag overthinking it save 30 and... Uh, <laughs> save 24. Save 24. <laughs> right. Exactly. Tell us, tell us uh, what, what 24 is in the metric system. And uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, you can visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't doesn't deserve. We don't have time for outtakes! Look, I don't care what Michael Phelps says. I'm not putting Fritos on my sandwich. <laughs> Peter, are you putting Fritos on your sandwich? Are you putting I'm Fritos, putting on, Fritos your on your sandwich? I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't let you ask. <laughs> can, can we do that little um, audio cue that you were, they were using on the earlier teasers just to let people know what this was about? Was it a- <laughs>